following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians are People Too. Got his got his Porsche started this morning. Yeah, did the Porsche cranked up for you, Jay? It's probably like I'm not talking to you guys now. I'm not talking now. <laughs> I actually haven't driven in a couple of days. I had a nice ride uh, back and forth to Connecticut last weekend. But <laughs> all right, all right. So so Westport, huh? Yeah, my wife got a job up that way in, in Western Connecticut. So we moved the family up there a few years ago, and I've been piecing together a schedule, you know, I had a, sem- I had a year of leave and then I had a semester where I could teach online and a semester where I could pack all my courses into one day and, uh, you know, a, a little time in an apartment in, in South Philly. And now I'm living out in Narberth, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb a little bit west and west of Philly. Gotcha. Well, we've got a Porsche question in here for you at the end. So uh, <laughs> um, uh, it looks like you've been to Amsterdam recently. Well, this is actually an ancient shirt. I was there in the summer, but this is an old, an old shirt that replaces an even older shirt. I had this like, you know, one that was just falling to rags and a friend was going to Amsterdam. I said, Oh, get me a bulldog t-shirt. And that was yeah. 15 years ago. Um, so. Awesome. That's something I should look for. I, uh, we're going over Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, this is a little bit different now. The bulldog has become, it's kind of taken over everything and become really commercial. So I think the joke is that they sell more uh, t-shirts than they do weed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brian, Brian will attest. I'm a, I'm a t-shirt. I'm a, I'm more of a t-shirt junkie in that yeah, regard. Yeah. So, you know, there. yeah, that is, that is my, um, the, the best souvenir I can possibly come away with from anywhere is a good t-shirt. Yeah. Well, I like this one because it, it's a conversation starter and, and only for people who kind of know, right? So yeah. I, I've, I've worn it to gatherings where I'm trying to meet new people and I, and I wear this and then the interesting people come and talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny, Jay, like I've, I've got my, my Boo Radleys t-shirt uh-huh. on and Jennifer this morning is like, what, what are the Boo Radleys? I'm like, we've been married for over 20 years. How do you not know the Boo Radleys? <laughs> Brian, let me do my shout outs real quick. Yeah, get your shout outs in. Jay, be a little patient. As always, University Press of Kansas, uh, also to UNC Press, uh, Modern Scholar and History Behind the News podcast. A uh, special shout out, uh, I think Brian is warranted to our Georgia Southern Eagles who beat Nebraska at Lincoln yeah. on Saturday. Uh, what, a, what a day of upsets. Any day that Notre Dame gets beat is, is a good day. So that, that, was, that was nice too. Um, and App State at A&M, my poor sister, uh, was very distraught over that. But Brian, I think it might that we have both App State and Marshall at the end yeah. of the season, I think. Yeah, we do. They're all in the Sun Belt. Yeah. Yeah. At home. So uh, should should be interesting. And just yesterday, uh, one of my students, somehow this came up in my U.S. History survey class, uh, uh, our, our barbecue question, which Jay yeah. will, will get to, to chime in on at the end here. You know, we, we've, we've wasted a little bit of time in the class on this. And, but anyway, one student came up afterwards. She's from Douglas, Georgia, and her folks uh, founded and run the National Barbecue and Grilling Association. And they have a magazine and, and all that, and also uh, have a conference every year, which 
you and I, buddy, might look into attending. Maybe I was going to say that's and, that's not far. Yeah, it's not. So shout out to to them. I'm going to put the a link to their their website and in, in Jay's description. So that's Perfect. what I have for shout outs today. Well, I just want to add one little thing. Let's uh, let's shout out the uh, the book series that just published Jay's book, uh, the Cornell Military History Series. Jay, what's the official name of that one? Uh, that's a good question. Battle it's just, it's just David, it's, it's David Silby's plaything, right? Isn't that the official name of it? Battlegrounds. <laughs> so I think it is called Battlegrounds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I talked with, um, one of the, uh, editors at Cornell at the SMH last year, and she gave me a really nice pair of socks, Cornell University Press socks that I, uh, I, I actually wear. So uh, shout out because they uh, Cornell is producing some some really good stuff right now. That's some good swag. Yeah, I mean, pair of Love socks that. is a lot lot better than you know a bookmark. So <laughs> or, or bear can koozie. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Today we are speaking with Jay Lockenauer. Jay is professor of history at Temple University, where he has been on the faculty since July 1996. He served as the chair of the Department of History from 2014 through 2020 and the director of the MA program from 1996 to 2001 and then again in 2005. Jay is affiliated with the Center for the Study of Force and Diplomacy at Temple and sits on the university's advisory board for teaching as well. He started his academic career as a visiting assistant professor at Franklin and Marshall College, and he was a distinguished visiting professor at the United States Air Force Academy in 2013-2014. Jay received his BA from the University of California, Berkeley, and earned his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. Jay is the author of two monographs, Soldiers as Citizens, Former Wehrmacht Officers in the Federal Republic of Germany, 1945 through 1955, and that one was done with Nebraska in 2001, and most recently, Dragon Slayer, The Life and Legend of Erich Ludendorff, uh, and Cornell put that one out uh, just last year. His articles have been, have been published in the Journal uh, of Military History and the German Studies Review, and his article, Black and White Memories of War, Victimization and Violence in West German War Films of the 1950s won the Society for Military History's Moncado Prize. Jay's research has been supported by the German Academic Exchange, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and many others. He is a highly decorated teacher and has won at least four teaching awards at Temple. Jay's been part of the digital scene for decades. He was an early editor for uh, H. German back when it first got started, and he served as the host of the New Books in Military History podcast from 2009 to 2019, and this is certainly not the first podcast that he has been on. So, uh, Jay, we really appreciate you taking a little time to talk to us this morning. Thanks a lot. Jay, I'm going to go ahead and get started with our usual first question. And this is basically your background. Uh, wh where do you come from? What did your parents do? And how did you first get interested in history? Well, I'm, I'm a little nervous about the barbecue question because um, while I was born in Indiana, I mostly grew up, grew up in California where barbecue is not so um, intensely studied as it is in other parts of the country. But so I grew up mostly in California. As you said, I went to the, to the University of California for, uh, for my undergrad. Um, my parents were, my mom was a, was a school teacher, among other things, managed a department store for a while, did a lot of different things. And my dad was an aer aeronautical engineer, uh, worked for the Air Force, worked for NASA, and then finished his career at Northrop Grumman out in California. So, you know, I think maybe I, growing up around the Air Force, that was part of my, my, you know, kindled my interest in military history. I was always kind of interested in flying and planes and astronauts and, and stuff like that. And, um, 
when I went to Berkeley, I was intending to, to be pre-med and I was going to be a history major and then, but take all the science classes and stuff and go to, go to med school. And um, I loved the science and I wasn't so fond of the sort of pre-med track and the other things that were involved in that. So um, all, all the time I'd been taking German along, along with my history major and finally just decided sometime, I think in my junior year, just to see if I could put these things together. And lo and behold, it, it worked out. I worked with um, Jerry Feldman at Berkeley pretty closely on an, on an honors thesis and a senior thesis. And then um, he helped pave the way for me to go to Penn. So, and, I, and then I went to Philly, never been there in my life, you know, drove out across country in a little rusty Honda Prelude and kind of haven't left um, other than these short stints other places or, or now, you know, back and forth to Connecticut a bit. Getting a PhD in history, was that kind of part of the plan all along? Or at what point in your undergrad did you decide this is the way I want to go versus doing something else? It was really that moment when I decided to bail out of, I mean, I, I dabbled in a couple of other things first, but that moment when I decided to try to put German and history together. And then I, I always attribute it to a lack of imagination. I just thought, well, I'll go get a PhD and become a professor and it'll all work out somehow. Somehow. Now, you, you mentioned you dabbled in some other things. We have to explore that because we've had guests who have dabbled from everything from theater to journalism okay, uh, and, and a lot of stuff in between. So what, what, what did you dabble in? Well, so the... Um, the, the sad part of the story is, you know, my first intention was medical school. And then when that didn't work out, I, I went into the business administration program at Berkeley, which was a huge disaster. I mean, I, I kind of like macroeconomics and some of those things, but, um, you know, statistics and accounting and all that. And again, it was just kind of the, the environment was so unstimulating that I couldn't stand it. So, so that helped push me in that direction of, of history. The, in terms of dabbling, I'll tell you, I have two... I, I'm really proud of two things that I've done in my life. One was when I was a little kid, I didn't want to be a fireman or an astronaut or anything like that. I wanted to be a disc jockey. And uh, when I was at Franklin and Marshall, I kind of, you know, bullied my way onto the air at Franklin and Marshall for a brief period as a, as a disc jockey, early mornings, I think it was on Tuesdays. I was open up the station in the morning and do the PSAs and play some music. And that sounds uh, very, that sounds very California, man. It was an interesting experience, but it also convinced me that I really did not want to be a disc jockey that, that I had chosen the right path uh, to get a PhD. And then the other thing was to teach at the Air Force Academy was a remarkable experience because when I was in high school, before I went, decided, uh, well, kind of while I was deciding on the medical school thing, I was, I was lining up to, to go to the Air Force Academy, you know, using through some connections that my dad had and so forth. Right. You know, I knew how to get in. I, ultimately, I made the decision to go to Berkeley, which was quite a different experience. And it was partly because of the med school thing. I, I got some advice from people at the academy that uh, doing the medical track in the Air Force Academy because of the commitment and the residency and all that kind of stuff really was um, was not an, not an economic way to, to do it. Right, right. Yeah. So how did, how did you decide on Penn? Well, Penn was, so I just applied all to East Coast schools, you know, for a PhD. I guess I did apply to Stanford, but I just kind of wanted to get, get out of California for a while and see the rest of the country. And so I applied all, you know, all the usual suspects, Harvard and Yale and Columbia and places like that. And I got the best deal at Penn. And it was a, it was a great decision in retrospect. I, you know, the people I was thinking about studying with at other places, I, I don't think I would have thrived uh, in some of those environments the way I did it at Penn. Brian, Jay's uh, set of usual suspects was not the same as my usual suspects. Yeah, no, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, I've, I've got a question. You uh, you mentioned that you worked with Gerald Feldman. Um, 
and anyone listening who knows German history knows that that he is, uh, you know, he's a bit of a German history god. So when you were an undergrad, did you realize how big of a deal that was, or you know, now only looking back, do you you realize what a gift it was to be able to work with him? Well, I think I think I had some some hint of it because he was. I, I had so many of his graduate students as as instructors, as TAs, and and so forth, and he was always you know, red faced, carrying a pile of papers and books around campus, you know, running from from place to place because he was so busy. And I so I definitely got the sense that that having getting the chance to work with him as an undergrad was was really special. And and honestly, he he and Tom Childers were good friends, the my advisor at, at Penn. And I'm sure, you know, his rec- recommendation went a long way towards my my uh, being at Penn. And then, you know, I, he's he's a somewhat controversial figure, I think, for some people because of the David Abraham deal and his involvement in that. But he was so generous when we had a conference at Penn my first year there, and he was scheduled to, to um, attend. And I figured, you know, I didn't think he'd re- remember who I was, but he really sought me out at the conference and asked me how I was doing and, and was really a, a generous guy. Somebody asked you real quick about German language. Uh, how, how did you pick that up? I was just interested. I mean, my family background is German, but but hundreds right. of years ago, and we don't really have, we. I, I'm, I met a distant cousin when I was in Germany this summer, but uh, like 10, you know, 10 times removed. So there was no language in my house other than English. And um, I took French in high school, and but a lot of my friends had taken German. And I just thought I'd give that a try in grad school, or in, excuse me, as, as an undergrad. And I just fell in love with it. I, I, I love the literature. I think it's, you know, it has a reputation as sort of this harsh, hard language. I found it really easy. I think it's beautiful. It can be beautiful. It can be also um, really harsh and ugly too. But we, I remember reading Siddhartha, Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha in German, and it's just, it's beautiful. I, that's, I, we've been asked what our favorite books are, and that is, uh, that's that's mine. And I read it in German for the first time. And it's one of those books that really, uh, really stuck with me. So you've got good taste. <laughs> and for me, one of, the, one of the great things about language and I and this is for me, it's German is the one I'm best at. But language is like a puzzle and I love puzzles. And so it's it, you get the joy of the for, with literature, for example, you get the joy of the literature and, and the, the quality of that alongside the, the pleasure of decoding a puzzle. And this just to tell a little story on myself. I remember the first the first real piece of literature we read uh, in this was like in you know, third year German in college was um, of Kafka's Metamorphosis. And I was still enough of a noob that I was when I was reading that first passage where he wakes up in bed and he's a cockroach. He's describing his Panzerhard stomach, and I'm thinking, okay, it's some kind of homoerotic. Um, you know, he's an athlete; he's proud of his body. Kind of and then, and then I get to the word ungetzifer, which means uh, you know, monster. And I'm, I'm like. Wait, what is it? What he's a what is he? And then and eventually, like, oh, he really is a cockroach. <laughs> that was you know, I just that always stuck with me, and that that pleasure I think still remains when I when I find something like that. Well, we uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, some of your earlier work in just a second, but um, you you just wrote a book that I've been telling a lot of people about, and I'm I I don't think I've ever really blown smoke towards anyone like this on on the show but uh, you know when i read your book i told bill i said i don't know jay but uh, i just read this book i really really like it a lot as historians we don't always read every word of a book you look for the argument and uh you move on and and i have to say i read your book as if i were reading a novel because it was that well written it was it was really interesting i'm going to use it in my grad class in the uh in the spring 
and I've been telling everybody about it. So you just wrote this great book on Ludendorff, uh, Eric Ludendorff, who's obviously really important when you talk about the First World War. But um, as you point out, after the war, people kind of, you know, just dismiss him as a quack. And what you've done is try to really uh, bring him back as an important piece of the interwar picture and the Third Reich. And so, you know, what what made you want to reexamine Ludendorff's role? And what do you want our listeners to know? What do we need to know about Ludendorff if we're going to understand the Third Reich? So I think the, the overall argument is that he becomes this symbol of the uh, and, and a promoter of this politics of revenge. And that's embodied in the title of the, of the book, Dragon Slayer, where I try to trace the story of his life as kind of parallel to the story of Siegfried, the, the hero of the Nibelungen lead, this yeah. medieval epic poem. Not so much the Wagner thing. People know Wagner. Tend, they tend to know Wagner better because of the operas. But the medieval epic poem has some important differences and really is about the betrayal of this mighty warrior and, and the, his wife's revenge. And I can remember, I can tell you this, how I came on to the story, but I can remember early on when I was doing research in the, the Nazi main party archive, which is this great resource for the period. The Nazis, when they thought they were going to win the war, planned to establish a museum and, and were collecting materials from the early days of the party to feature in this museum. And then when they lost, we captured all that and microfilmed it. So it's pretty widely available. It's a great place to, to get some research done pretty efficiently. And I was leafing through and I'd been working on Ludendorff for a while. So I had done the spade work to kind of prepare myself for this moment. But there was a headline in a, a right wing newspaper that read Ludendorff ist unser Siegfried. And Ludendorff is our Siegfried. And it just hit me like a brick. I, I, many, most historians have had that moment where that kind of aha, it just hits you like, oh, that's what this all means. Like, that's how this comes together. And um, that encouraged me to pair the, what I had intended to just be a kind of a straight biography that extended beyond 1918 with this sort of literary element. And I, and I, I think, and I, I'm glad you, you seem to have picked up on this, that it was an effort really to, to try to write something that was also a little, you know, pretty imaginative and 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 as literary as I could make it, given my limited skills and, and experience. But that was the hook, kind of that that story arc of the Dragon Slayer. Plus, as a as a um, kid who played D and D, I just loved the fact that I could, as an historian, put Dragon Slayer on the title of a book. I thought that was yeah. Cool. Now, now now all has been revealed. Yeah. Now we're getting now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> One of the things I do for research for the podcast is, you know, I look for anything I can find about you online and um, you, you are still using Facebook. You're, I assume you're, you're, you know, you're a little older than I am. So you're right in that Facebook demographic. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, I saw where you said that you had just been promoted to full professor and you said it, it may have taken me a little longer than, uh, than it should have. Talk about that. I mean, your first book came out in 2001. It was your dissertation. And, you know, looking at your CV, you've done a ton of administrative work. And I think your career is really it really says a lot about kind of the things that happen to people in academia. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, just talk a little bit about that, that process of, of not putting that second book out for a while, but when you do so it being a really quality product. Uh, yeah, that, that you, you read that story, right? I mean, I got sucked into administrative work and I, and I say sucked in, but, but really I, I kind of enjoyed it. It's part of, part of what, what's been fun about being a historian, a you know, professional historian in a university for 25 years is that I'm, I haven't just done the same thing over and over and over again. You know, I've, I've directed teaching centers, I've been chair of the department, I've, I've managed graduate programs, I've worked with a lot of graduate students, I teach undergraduates, I write, I edit, I, you know, so 
I do podcasts uh, and and look, you know, at the time it was it was a little bit frustrating once I realized what I was doing to myself in terms of, you know, stalling my promotion um, by not prioritizing research. I'm surrounded at Temple by fantastic colleagues who are incredibly, many of whom are incredibly productive. Yeah. And, you know, I saw, I saw it happening. Uh, I knew what was happening and I kind of did it anyway. <laughs> and, and, and I enjoy, you know, being with my family and taking the kids, you know, I was always the, the one who was taking the kids to school and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I did a lot of other stuff and I'm, I was reconciled to the fact that maybe I would just stay an associate professor forever. But this Ludendorff thing kind of inspired me enough to, to, to push that through. And now it's, you know, you're reminded how fun it is to be an historian and to research. And, do, you know, I went back to the archives this summer on a new project. And um, so I'm, I'm intending to continue to, to write and so forth. But I'm just one of those people that writes very slowly and does lots of other things in, in between. Yeah, but it sounds like you, you made, you prioritized, you know, life choices, yeah. right? I mean, you, you did what was important to you you know, especially getting to spend time with your kids and stuff like that. So I don't know, I think people, especially from the outside, kind of forget, you know, it, it, it make, looks like we just have this rush to go get get tenure, get promoted. It's, it's not always like that. Uh, tenure, tenure was a different issue. Yeah, right. Yeah, there was a clock ticking and, and sure. that was a lot of pressure and anxiety associated with that. But the other thing that I would say about Temple, and I'm, I'm not going to name names, is I had colleagues for whom I have enormous respect, who were associate, who retired as associate professors. Yeah. Yeah. They were, you know, good historians, great teachers, wonderful people. And they were associate professors. There's no, there was, I, you know, I'd kind of, like I said, I, I, there's no shame in that. No. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, uh, my advisor at Ohio State, a um, guy named Alan Byershin, uh, who I don't think listens to the podcast, but maybe I can talk him into it. Um, he, without question, is one of the most brilliant men uh, that, that I've ever met. And he uh, he really cared about teaching and about guiding graduate students. And, you know, he retired as an associate professor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have no doubt that if he just made some different decisions, he could have written three or four books, but uh, he just he just wrote the one. Do, do you want to do our, our faux break? We're almost, we're 25 Five minutes in or do you want to yeah we can we can we can we can so break it yeah jay when did you graduate 1989 so your, your ba 89 89 I'm, I'm... yeah so we're the same so I, yeah, high school 85 ba 89 and yeah. i got my phd in 95 yeah, me too. Right. Yeah. So we're on the same. Yeah, we're we're same. That we're was right one, there. One of the things I learned being around Gerald Feldman and his students was not to take forever to get my PhD. You know, you know, yeah. five, six years is plenty of time for you, you know, in European history where you've got language and some other things going on. Because they all my TAs at Berkeley had been there 12 and 13 years. You wow. know, the coffee was good, the weather was was nice, there were no jobs, so they just hung around. And I didn't want, didn't want to be in that situation. I, you know, I did notice that. I saw on your CV, I, I, you really went quickly through, once you hit uh, Penn, you, you moved through really quickly and got done. Yeah. Is, yes, uh, well, is, Chil is Childers still now. there? Uh, Childers is retired now. Okay. Um, um, I, I have sadly relatively little contact with him. I don't think his health is very good at the moment. Okay. But despite being in Philadelphia all these years, you know, I've, I see him once in a while, but it's not like we hang out. We ever we ever hung out, so. Gotcha. 
Well, Jay, let's talk about uh, Germany and, and Ukraine, some more contemporary stuff, but try to tie it back to, to the history. Um, Germany's recently being criticized, I think, for its response to, to, the, to the invasion, to Russia's you know, role in all this. And your first book, you examined post-World War II veterans associations. So you're pretty familiar with the broader context, especially the social context, mm-hmm. I, I think. So what, what do you think about, you know, the, the limits of Germany's willingness to contribute to any military endeavor? And, and do you think that does that World War II experience still to, still have a role in that? You know, I know there's constitutional issues, right? But I mean, just socially, is that still a thing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously, I, I don't know a, a representative sample of Germans. I have a peculiar, you know, uh, um, peculiar set of friends just because of my profession and, and yeah. But I think there's still a, a kind of an allergy to to military affairs, um, you know, to, to the military, to military spending. Um, you know, it's not glorified the way it is here in the United States. Um, so I think there's a lot of a, a lot of hesitation, and 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 I think it's fair to trace that back to the Second World War and the, the legacy of that. We we talked with Dan Krebs several episodes ago now, and and Dan he's working on a on a book actually on it, but but he brought it up that German troops who served in Afghanistan there was a, a few incidents, but one significant one where they got caught in a firefight. The German army didn't really have an award for valor in combat mm-hmm. anymore, right? Because of you know, basically the, the, the past. Um, and they had to kind of come up with something to, to fix it. But I guess, I guess there was, I think if Brian, if I remember right, Dan said that, you know, society was open enough and, and this incident was a big enough deal where everyone was okay with, okay, we should have something. Yeah. You know, for, yeah. for, for yeah. that. But I, I'm also curious about in, in Ukraine, you know, the Russians have just, and this may be outside your wheelhouse a little bit, Jay, but Putin's emphasis on, we, we got to denazify. I know what what is what is that all about? I mean, is that because it's it's clearly something still in the Russian memory as well that resonates. Again, this is a, this is a, a bit of a stretch for me, and I'm not an, I'm not an expert in this in this area. I think that's just Putin blowing smoke. Uh, you know, bring just like calling someone a Nazi in the in the United States becomes just kind of a, a reflex. Uh, you know without really any foundation in, in reality, whether, so, you know, but obviously for, for Russia, like for Germany, the second world war looms large and those, those, those metaphors, those tropes are out there to, to access, to whip up enthusiasm. Yeah. And they still resonate clearly yeah. um, as they do in Germany. I mean, it was pretty significant that, that Germany pumped up its military expenditure. Yeah. That was a big deal. Reason. I mean, that's a big deal. They're being criticized now for not, yeah, sure. They 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 promised all this, but they're not actually delivering weapon systems and things like that. Um, I think for me, just as someone who's interested in in Europe and and history, the reaction of the poles has been the most remarkable. I mean, and, and I've yeah. got friends, friend, German friends, and and people with connections to Poland who are just kind of astounded and and really um, impressed with the the degree to which not just the government but the but Polish people have taken in Ukrainians. And there's not. There's, you know, there's some historical bad blood there. That oh, yeah. Yeah. Interfere yeah. Uh, with that. But but they're putting that aside uh, to really help out the Ukrainians more than the Germans, I think, in, in some some ways. So yeah, I think it's it's interesting that the United States, we've got at least three or four sets of veterans, especially sets of veterans who've experienced combat and that, you know, they're in different generational stages. But you have a collectively you have a heavy presence of that, mm-hmm. whereas in Germany, 
you don't have that, right? I mean, there's 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 hardly any World War II veterans left. And beyond that, I mean, other than you know, more recently, there's been no experience of the, the, the trauma of combat, those kind of, those veterans coming home and how you deal with them, right? Which I think Germany is struggling with that, you know, more recently with, with the troops returning from serving in Afghanistan. And, and admittedly, there are small numbers right. comparatively. And, and as, I mean, it, this didn't come up earlier, but they were stationed, not to denigrate their, their service and experience there, but they were stationed in an area that was relatively calm. Yeah, 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 right. right. So, and intentionally. Right. Yeah. So my current project is on sports and the military, and one of the one of the elements of it is the the support for the Paralympic movement. So m- most militaries now provide they're the way they get around the amateur the amateur status of athletes. Right? Is they're serving in in militaries, the, the elite Olympic athletes at least in the United States. The support for the Paralympics is huge because we have unfortunately a lot of of uh, wounded veterans. Right participate in the in the Paralympics. And Germany has started to do that as well. But again, the numbers are so tiny. There's just a handful of, of Paralympic athletes that are connected to the military the way Amer- so many Americans are. Well, you know, the reason I asked that question or I wrote that question about um, Germany's response is because last night we had a file for Theta event and um, one of our uh, colleagues who who looks or who studies uh, Eastern Europe said uh, oh you know Brian the damn Germans why won't they pull it together what are they doing and um, and so I was like oh yeah you know that's a uh, uh, um, a good thing to talk about but when you wrote that that first book looking at at German veterans that was shortly after the wall had come down right you know you're you're right there in that that period um did you have the opportunity to actually go and and talk to veterans associations and what would i mean i can't imagine what that world must have been like in the 90s of of world war ii former officers it's an interesting story um so it was very much my my path toward that toward that book that my dissertation in that book uh, started in the fall of 1989 when I w- was in grad school just starting I was intending to study I think you know East Elbian conservative elites in Prussia in the 19th century something like that and the wall fell and suddenly that's, 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 I don't think you could make that up <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> no, um, and uh, one of one of my I think it was my senior thesis was on you know conservative like the the Koit Zeitung, this conservative newspaper based in East Prussia and its attitude towards Russia and how, how this con- these conservative people with these conservatives and sensibilities um, thought about an, e- an even more conservative autocracy next door, but that was also a threat uh, militarily in terms of trade and, on, and all that. So that was my original project. Then the wall fell and suddenly West Germany became, instead of being this kind of temporary ad hoc solution kind of cold war to being a legitimate stable pluralistic democratic state and i was like well how did that happen why when when given its historical experience after the war and nazism and the destruction and so forth um how did that how did that happen and because of my interest in the military it, it, it occurred to me that looking at veterans might be a way you know kind of an extreme example to explain that these people that had been you know in terms of the officers had been intimately connected to the Nazi regime, uh, had you know supported the Nazi war effort, and, you know through their own actions, then were discriminated against and, and defamed after the war, according to their sense you know their sense of, of honor and all that by this new state and society. And yet they they unlike the 1920s, they don't go around shooting the place up and 
staging coups and things like that. And, and there's yeah, some yeah. obvious explanations to that involving the, the American occupation, uh, you know, the occupation by the allies. But, but I, I tried to dig for some more, uh, some more evidence. And I did. So I very early on, I started talking to veterans, uh, to German veterans, and they all they none of them remembered what I was seeing in the archive. They remembered a story of having no choices, of, of the Americans telling everybody what to do, of American money dominating everything. But in the archive, I was seeing this enormous ferment, in, you know, among all sides, but, but among these conservative veterans about the possibilities of remaking Germany. Because many of them were, you know, they were intensely patriotic. They loved their country. And, I, and many of them also saw what a disaster Nazism had been. You know, even if it's in hindsight, and even if they still sympathize with a lot of the worldview, they're like, oh, that was really bad and bad for Germany, bad for this country that I love. And so they were eager to, to think of something new. And many of those new novel solutions, they were anti-democratic and they were problematic in, in, from my perspective, problematic in lots of ways. But it wasn't that there was there were no choices, and that was kind of what interested me was the this this moment in the late forties, early fifties when there there were there did seem to be some choices for Germany to make. Why do you I, think there was the disconnect then between that memory and what you found in the archive? Well, I, mean, I think it's typical of oral history. People have told this story to themselves over right. and over time, and and just clearly American money and you know the occupation and so forth was. Uh, was was crucial was a crucial factor in in what happened after the war. It, it did limit the possibilities, but it didn't eliminate other possibilities. Is this where your interest in the the post war films kind of came in? Yeah, so that's an yeah. interesting story because that was a um, I was so sick of my research and my dissertation by the time I finished it that I just needed desperately to do something else. I you know, and I fortunately I had this one year job at F and M. Uh, where there was no tenure clock ticking and I could kind of take a little step back from the dissertation a bit. These officers had introduced me to, the, you know, in, the, in their documents, not the persons themselves, they had introduced me to the, all these films that I was unfamiliar with. I, I, I watch a lot of war movies, but I didn't know about The Bridge and The Devil's yeah. General and Congrad right. and all these other movies from the 50s. And I was surprised by the quantity of them. And, and I started watching them and how good they were. So I, that, that was my little side project way back when. And I, and I did some conference presentations and I never really felt like I had enough kind of meat to hang on it to, to become an article. But eventually I got around to that and um, uh, spent a summer doing some research and, and was able to turn that into an article. And I, and I still teach. In fact, this semester I'm teaching a course called Battleground Cinema, which is about war movies and what they teach us about history and what they don't. And that's a, that's a great fun to teach. I'm going to ask you for that syllabus. Okay. That sounds like a lot of fun. And it, it, it originated at the Air Force Academy, actually. The, um, the, the model there is they kind of, they kind of, they, I mean, it's a negotiation, but you, you teach some required courses in the first semester. The cadets get to know you a little bit, and then you can offer something that's you know, in your area of specialization. And they were kind of encouraging me you know, because they didn't want to get hassled about enrollments to like do something that, that the cadets will really like. And I'm like, oh, I have this thing on war movies. And I, there were so many, so many students interested that I had to teach two sections of it. So I ended up doing an overload on this, you know, sort of guest. Wow, that's great. Teach, wow. Guest teaching gig because their rooms would only fit 24. And so I had to teach because there were 50 students interested. I had to teach two. say, I just, I agreed to teach two sections of it. Sounds like you had a really good experience there. Yeah. Doing it was, that. 
And, yeah. and actually, I would defer in all any barbecue questions that may ensue. I would defer to Bob Wedeman, um, a friend I made at the academy. Who yeah, was- yeah, Bob. He's on our list. Yeah, we're going to get to him. And yeah, he sounds like he's a he's a he's a pro. Yeah, so. To him on barbecue because he was the. Um, he was the grill master at all the tailgates before the, before the football games. And he would show up the night before and camp out to, to smoke his brisket or whatever he was making and ask wow. him about, ask him about, I think it was called the Dr. Bob. It was a sandwich at the, at the golf course, uh, the, the diner at the golf course they had, a, he had a sandwich named after him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. We're going to get him on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, Jay, you, uh, you mentioned you're, you're working on, um, looking at, uh, sports in the military and we reached out to you a while ago about being on the podcast and you were about to head out for a research trip. And, uh, from my Facebook stalking, I saw that you spent some significant time traveling around Germany, you know, dipping your feet in the, uh, in the various, uh, in the rivers, um, in the Danube there. What did you do in Germany this summer? And uh, tell us a little bit more about the, the project you're working on. Um, yeah, so this is another one that kind of grows out of the dissertation, the way things do. In one of the veterans organizations, the Organization of Africa Corps Veterans, would stage a soccer match against the British 8th Army every year. And part of my argument is that each of these organizations developed a kind of a justification for its existence, an organizational kind of ideology that they would promote. And so for the, for the Großdeutschland division, it was anti-communism, that we had fought the Russians on the Eastern Front and we know how bad they are. And for the Africa Corps, it was kind of international reconciliation, playing on this idea that Rommel and the war in, the, in North Africa it had been a fair fight and a, you know, kind of a normal war in contrast to the war of annihilation on the Eastern Front. And that you know they'd been kind of the good guys, the good German soldiers. And they embodied this by playing soccer. And, and it was kind of a footnote in the dissertation because they play for a few years every year at their annual convention. So they, they play at their annual convention and they would invite a British, British 8th Army team to come and play. But of course, over time, the veterans age and there is no German army. So there are no new Africa Corps uh, players while the British 8th Army would stay in its early 20s and was a really good team. So by the late <laughs> 50s, the Germans are just getting killed. I mean, literally bodies littering the field, injuries, seven nothing, seven nil, I should say, the, the score. So eventually they call the game off. And As I say, I'm sure it was the British who wanted to continue playing this game. <laughs> and that damage, but, um, it's, so that kind of always stuck with me as just a curious story about like, why, why do they make sports such a central part of, of their, you know, raison d'etre? And then it was sort of cinched by my experience at the Air Force Academy, which is crazy about sports as as Mm -hmm. colleges are, but something like 25% of the cadets are actually NCAA athletes in fencing and hockey and And unlike at Temple, where I very rarely get a football or basketball player in my classes, I had I had tons of them in, in my in my classes at the Air Force Academy. So um I got to know them. I went to every chance I I tried to go to every single athletes, at least one of their their matches or games. So that kind of, you know, brought back the memory of that soccer match. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do something about why militaries invest so much energy, time, money in caring about sports and putting on sports uh, events. And like my my dissertation, in some ways, there's some obvious answers. Um, You know, it's physical fitness. It's supposed to build camaraderie and teamwork and aggressiveness. And there's surprisingly little concrete evidence to support that. And in fact, it causes injuries and there's abuse and there's all kinds of bad things that go along with sports. And so I think there's something there about military culture and masculinity. And but what, wasn't it also part, and Brian, you'll know this too, it, wasn't it part of the pre-war National Socialist 
program. Uh, and and not to draw too big of an analogy, but go back for us and, and also, I guess, the, the Brits, you know, earlier, you know, with muscular Christianity. Boy right? Scouts. and Yeah, Boy Scouts. Yeah. Paramilitary sports organizations were common. And, and the, part of the idea, too, is I could do this as a as a, at least a comparative project and get get out of Germany a little bit. I could read French and yeah. do Britain and the United States, obviously. So um, it's I'm still I'm starting with East and West Germany. It's post-war. And uh, um, we'll see where it goes from there. But there's, I'm already finding all kinds of interesting stuff. Um, yeah, there was an American Army program called the German Youth Activities that encouraged Americans with specialized skills, and it was often sports experience, uh, to work with German kids in, near their base and, and make baseball teams and basketball teams, and they play against each other. And Babe Ruth was a was a you know the the, the mascot, so to speak, of the of the early baseball teams, and um, so there's something there. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's part of our Americanization process. Do you, um, so two, one first thing, do you know Heather Dichter? Yes. So yes. I was going to say Heather, uh, you know, she does Olympic stuff, but uh, if you didn't know her, she she would be someone to, to talk to. But um, interestingly, uh, back in 03, I did a, a, a project in former East Germany where I was supposed to just go over and and represent the West. And they, I was a team leader. It was me and, and uh, some women from from Britain. And they said, you know, bring stuff to do with these kids. We were working at a youth club in uh, in Ilsenburg. So I was like, what do you what do you mean? What do you bring? And they were like, bring basketball, bring baseball. Like all they wanted me to do was effectively go over there and play sports with these kids um, because they thought that might keep them from becoming neo-Nazis. <laughs> and I mean, it was a, a, an amazing experience. It was a really, really good time. But, you know, they they definitely saw this connection between like, go over there, play sports, show them that Westerners are not all bad. And uh, they thought sports was a way to make that connection. And it was, um, it ended up being a really good experience. I had a similar experience and this was in 1991. I was spending some time doing research and I, um, I, I had a little free time and I, and I thought this being 1991, I thought I'd go to Leipzig and Dresden and kind of see where the revolution happened. And, and I was on my way and I, I, it's a long, long, too long a story to tell, but I met this family from Chemnitz, from Karl Marxstadt, and they invited me to stay at their apartment, which was empty. They were staying out in their little garden set settlement outside of town, and they would pick me up and take me to the train station if I wanted to go somewhere and feed me breakfast. It was a wonderful, they were delightful people, um, but uh, one of their neighbors was a young guy, and he wanted to meet the American, and he would come over, and he, most, more than anything, he wanted me to ride his motorcycle, oh. <laughs> and, and, and I... I have ridden a motorcycle like in total, you know, <laughs> certainly not experienced at it. And I got on this thing and I rode down the street um, back and forth a few times. And that really impressed them. I could ride this motorcycle. <laughs> awesome. That's great. That is awesome. I did I actually did a, an accidental little burnout too, which scared the hell out of me because I, you know, not, I, not being kind of a novice, I was going down the street and then as I turned, of course, my hand went like this. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's where the throttle it, is, and yeah, so the really yeah. spun out behind me, and I didn't crash, so it looked really cool. But um, it was totally a terrifying accident. Hey, impress the neighbors, man. That's yeah, it's cool. great. Well, Brian, what do you think? Yeah, this has been great. We're gonna uh, um, do the do the rapid fire here at the end, if that works for you, Jay. Great. Yeah. So, Jay, we. Uh, do 10 questions. Brian will ask, excuse me, Brian will ask a couple. I'll ask a couple. Answer as best you can, as honestly as you can. And please know that we will comment, uh, if not judge occasionally. 
this because ultimately this is really about me and Brian. Uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll see how you do with this. All right. So the best read recently, not related to history, not related to what you do. Oh, that's easy. I rely heavily on my grad students, who many of whom share my love for science fiction and fantasy, um, to find new things. Because of course, I've read Tolkien and Robert Jordan and all that kind of stuff, and and I get I use that stuff up pretty quickly. And somebody turned me on to a, to a, a woman named Arcady Martine. That's a pseudonym. I forget what her real name is. And she's actually an historian. She's a PhD academic historian of the Ottoman Empire. She oh. wrote this fantastic, it's, it's, there are only two books right now, and I'm hoping that there are more. The first one's called A Memory, A Memory Called Peace. And her last name is Martine, Martin, like Martin with an E at the end. Okay. And in, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can smell the history, the language, the cultural studies, the anthropology, the, the, uh, the bureaucracy. You can, you can feel the, the, you know, the Ottoman background, if you, if you know that about her. Um, and it, so it's this kind of you know, galactic space opera, galactic empire sort of story. The main characters are mostly female. Um, it's just remarkable. Um, All right. That's okay. interesting, the number of people we've talked with, Brian, who are fans of science fiction. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a connection um, there. You know, those of us yeah. who, who I mean, end kind up of being historians are, are, are very often interested in, in uh, science fiction. There's a, lot of, there, there's a lot of crossover with, in, you know, ex exploration and, and um, encounter is a theme in history that, that resonates. And I think that in a lot of science fiction authors use Quite that. a lot of the, the books, they, they have to create an, a, a, a history. Yeah. A that makes sense, yeah. right? A culture and all of that for the story. Yeah. All right. Best work of history you've recently read. Oh boy. Um, let me think. You know, when this was a little bit, this has been a, now a little bit uh, of time, but during the pandemic, I did, I read a lot of science fiction and I read a lot of stuff outside my field uh, just for fun. And oh, good. I some Native American history. And I read this brilliant book called Comanche Empire by a, this author is a Finnish guy. And so I can't pronounce his name. Um, but Comanche Empire, and then there was another one, um, I mean, Daniel Richter's, uh, what is it, Looking East from Indian Country, mm -hmm. um, some things like that that I really enjoy. And it's, it's that, you know, when you read for, in your own field, it's work, and yeah. you have to be critical, and, and other, I can read outside my field just for pleasure. And that was one of the nice things about being chair was I got to read all my colleagues' stuff for, for merit and for promotion and, and things like that, and I ended up reading a lot of um, a lot of American history. Uh, Bryant Simon, my colleague at Temple, wrote a brilliant book called The Hamlet Fire about uh, this uh, deadly fire at a, at a chicken processing plant in South Carolina, I think. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. His, his work. He's, yeah. And he's working on a thing on public bathrooms now, which I can't wait to read. Um, huh. So I always, I always tell, you know, always read outside your field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's just, it, it's, it, if anything, just to maintain sanity. My favorite question of the new season, Brian. Brian's brilliance here. You get to listen to only one band or singer for the rest of your life. Who would that be? Currently, I, I, maybe ten years ago, I might have said Led Zeppelin, and now I think I'm firmly settled into the Clash. As ah, good choice. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I like it. I like. No, that's 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 really because you got a range. There's a there's a little bit of a range there. Yeah. Uh, as far as you know, your emotional state at a given time, yeah. what 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 you might listen to in their catalog, but, and you know, and it's the it's the adolescent thing. It was yeah, 
when they were around is when I was a you know, kid and I saw them once back in the day. Oh, wow. They were terrible. They were terrible in concert. This was, this was the us Festival yeah. in 83 and they were breaking up already. And it was, it was not good. But, I don't think anyone brings their a game to the us festival, yeah. but you know, that's just me. <laughs> I rely on my kids a lot too, to, to find new bands. I I'm grooving on childish Gambino right now. Oh yeah. Lover's uh, son. Yeah. There's a lot of great uh, psychedelic uh, stuff that c- comes out now. I can't, I, you know, it's Spotify, so I can't name any of the bands necessarily. Yeah. I've got some playlists go. My kids can make a, a mean playlist. No, I, I'm a clash. I, I, I like it. It's good. Uh, what do you, what are you binge watching? So recently I'm always late, which is, has the benefit of you can truly binge watch, right? right. You have to watch episodes. Um, one of my favorites recently was our flag means death. That's um, now I'm, I'm going to forget what it's on. It's on, it's on HBO or Netflix. And it's um, Taika Waititi and uh, Murray from Flight of the Concords, these New Zealand actors. Oh, yeah. yeah, Murray, yeah. Murray is arguably the main character. Taika Waititi plays Blackbeard. And Murray is this 18th century gentleman who wants to take to the sea and become a pirate, but doesn't really realize what being a pirate is. It's just hilarious. It's really, really good. Well, hey, I recommend if you haven't seen it, uh, Netflix has a show called Cleo uh, with a K. And it's about a former Stasi assassin who uh, gets betrayed and then the wall comes down and she goes looking for revenge. You know, it's very, very humorous. So um, definitely worth checking out. Jay, my my friends I stay with in in Statesboro when I'm down there, Terry and Ellen, for, for, for over a year now, we have been going through by DVD because it's not streaming Northern Exposure. Okay. Remember the early nineties? Yeah. 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 And we, we've been going through it and, and I think we're deep in the season three now. Cause that's back when they had like 20 episodes in a season. Right. But they're all, you know, it's DVD. It still comes from Netflix and every, you know, Monday night we'll, we'll watch a couple of episodes and I'll tell you what it holds up. Yeah. It's a good show. It I'm, really I'm just, holds up. Yeah. I'm impressed that Terry has a DVD player. <laughs> oh, he's, we got to use his uh, Xbox thing. Yeah. I'm also yeah. I'm really lazy sometimes and so binge watching is kind of a commitment I, I just like to have something on sometimes yeah. and yeah I'm same here into yeah. Bob's Burgers the, oh the, yeah Bob's Burgers is awesome that's really funny and um and then I'll watch um which you guys probably know tank chats from the British Armor Museum mm-hmm. no and no, then, I've, I've seen that yeah okay and then uh, Jay Leno's Garage since I'm a car guy I, I, yeah Jay Leno's Garage it's, it's kind of, it's they're, they're both totally formulaic and but they're just sort of soothing you can have them on in the background yeah you, you don't have to pay attention really right and I, I'm like you I, I gotta have something going on in the background and stuff like that's perfect for that that's awesome this is based on some photos you had on Facebook should Pete Rose get into the Hall of Fame no okay really I'm sick of him <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, again, my, my answer would have been different 20 years ago. Yeah, I think I think the current situation where his his record is in the Hall of Fame as it should be, but he doesn't need to be. OK, good answer. Now, I, he was you know, I had a, I had a Pete Rose poster on my wall when I was a kid. I had yeah. mom used to tease me because she said I had the ugliest posters in the world. I had Pete Rose, George Foster, who is not an attractive man. In, right. in my opinion, and Sid Vicious were the three posters <laughs> I had on my wall. And my mom used to just come in my room and like, what is this? So <laughs> is, Morgan, is Farrah Fawcett. Favorite, Joe Morgan, I have the Joe Morgan jersey and the whole thing. He was my favorite. He said, I've, I've got to ask you, you know, you, you've got pictures of you wearing both Cincinnati Reds attire and then Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. 
So I have, I, I describe myself as an ecumenical baseball fan. I okay. grew up, I was living in Southern Ohio in the seventies when the red, big red machine was on. That's my favorite. 76 reds are my ball luck. Yeah. When I moved from, from Dayton, Ohio to Los Angeles area, just as the Dodgers were getting really hot in the late seventies. Yeah. I went to college in 1985 in Berkeley, just as the A's and the Giants were both heating up. And right. in the East Bay, I was an A's fan. And so I was just blessed by awesome baseball. And Philly is a great sports town. The Phillies have been a bit of a, you know, over the past 30 years, um, have been good twice. Um, yeah. It's, so it's, it's a little frustrating, uh, but I just, I love the grass. I love, you know, Dodger Stadium when you, you're, you're in the desert and you go out into this place with this beautiful green grass and the dry hills in the background and the, the 76 sign. And it's just all. And that stadium is just an awesome bit of mid-century modern architecture too. All right. Your go-to cheesesteak location when you are uh, in Philly. Oh, um, not Pat's or Gino's. That's my first bit of advice to, to anyone who. Well, we've heard that before. Yeah, we've heard yeah. that before. Yeah, yeah. Heard that before. I mean, because this is my theory. Places that cater to tourists don't have to be good because you're right. only there once. They never have to satisfy someone enough to come yeah. back. Jim's was really good on South Street, but it just had a fire recently. Um, and I haven't heard any, anything about plans to reopen. Um, frankly, other than Pat's and Gino's, any roach infested cart on a street corner will give you a better cheesesteak than you'll have anywhere else in the country because it's the bread, it's the it's the grease soaking into the bread out of the, the certain kind of meat, the onions. It's all right. So I, not not Jim's if it reopens. Um, what are some of the other faves? I, I, I mean, Jim's if it reopens, otherwise just anywhere downtown Reading Terminal Market, that area, you'll get it. Yeah. All right. Good answer. Cool. Okay, uh, let's let's uh, discuss your Porsche briefly. Porsche, excuse me. Yeah, <laughs> I, do, I do speak German, so you know, I, I I do. I remember, you know, the old the, the the Top Gear crew with you know Clarkson and May and Hammond, and how you know Hammond was the only one who was really pro Porsche because, mm. and of course, I'm sure it's because he was we and he could fit in them. Um, yeah. But but I remember, you know always that, that Clarkson and, and May would, you know, they'd pull out the old ambitious but rubbish, you know, thing with Porsche. So there's always that tension, right, over Porsche. I would like to see Porsche get back into Formula One, though. Top speed that you've hit in your 911. Oh, gosh. And, and this is going on, this is going on tape? Yeah. Yeah. Know, yeah. Yep. On, the, on the record? Yeah. Um, 110. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 but really the beauty of, of, of any car and the Porsche in particular is, you know, 40 to 80 in, in nothing, you know what I mean? Yes. Right. And a half. <laughs> and yeah. that's, that's the, that's the fun spot. You know, 110 is, is just too fast. Um, have you, have you rented a car in Germany where you could open it up more than that? No, I had a car when I was there recently, um, it was a Mercedes st station wagon, E-class station wagon. And it would go, I think I got it up to 170 kilometers, which is about 100 miles an hour, a little over yeah. an hour. And that was really about as far as it wanted to go. It was smooth, comfortable, you know, to, it, then it would take 30 seconds to get it up to 180. And then that was just about as far as it would go. Yeah. Have you ever taken your 911 to like a track day somewhere? No. Lime Rock or something do, like I, that? I, do, I, would, I would only do a track day in someone else's car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a good, good, good call. Um, I did, I did for my birthday one time. My dad uh, got me a track day at New Jersey Mo Motorsport Park in South South Jersey. Mm -hmm. 
we rented a, uh, it's a, it was a BMW M3 GT, something like that. And it was a full on race car with the cage and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. That That's pretty wild. It? Cause I, I, I had my mom and my, and Jennifer got me for my birthday a year ago, a day at the uh, BMW racing school, you know, the factories here in Spartanburg, Greenville. And I got, got a day doing that with instruction and stuff. And it was it was fabulous. And of course I came back whining to Brian, how sore I was. Yeah. My left leg was, wouldn't, wouldn't right. Work. Yeah. Your left leg. Cause you, you got it planted yeah. on that, on that stationary pedal you yeah. know, platform thing. And oh my gosh. Well, this yeah. was a man, you know, when I drove was a manual, but we just basically left it in fifth the whole time. And, and yeah, that way and, the, and again the greatest thing isn't necessarily the top speed and again we probably got i was 130 on the straights or something like that it was taking corners at 80 or, or and like breaking blind hill the, the most terrifying thing was that at, at the track i was on after you come around the straight you take this one corner at 80 and then you accelerate towards a, a blind rise you know so there's a and rise in the track and there you can't yeah. see the side and you're going 100 miles an hour over this rise and there's a guy on the side with a flag and he's supposed to warn you if there uh, if there's a wreck or something on the other side but that's a pretty exhilarating experience the first couple of times you do it to yeah i found that the the braking i i, I really got into that i just uh, the, the the feel of the, the g-forces and, and whatever and then accelerating out of the braking is just yeah. really really fun I should say, you know, for, for listeners who might be interested in a career as an historian is that um, I, I did not buy my own Porsche, put it that way. Um, <laughs> so my advice, you know, I've worked a lot with graduate students and one piece of advice I, I always offer um, is to marry well. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have, since you mentioned that, I said to uh, Bill, when I started doing research yesterday, Bill, we are both still in the, uh, in the department. And uh, I called Bill in, showed him your, your car on Facebook. And I said, Bill, apparently Temple pays a lot better than Georgia Southern. <laughs> this is another important one, Jay. David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar? Oh, David Lee Roth, please. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going to go. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm glad to hear it. I had, the, I mean, I had Van Halen one on cassette, man. I had it, I had it on on eight track. Ooh, okay. Because I, I was in that purgatory. Remember the purgatory period between eight tracks and cassettes? Yeah, yeah. Right, and and they still had it on. I probably got it. You know, probably stole it from somebody else. Right. Out of their I car. Think, I something. think I was seven uh, back then. So. We'll... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, your opinion of the portrayal of Eric Ludendorff in Wonder Woman. I knew this was going to come. Up. <laughs> it comes up a lot. I was just, I was just, my mouth was wide open. I didn't really know when I went into the theater, and yeah. I was like, "What, really?" <laughs> so he's, and I, I was trying to be generous. You know, I study films and I teach films, and I'm, I'm always. I'm, I'm pretty flexible. I'm not one of these people that wants to pick nits about realism and, and so forth. Um, and so I, I tried to give them the benefit of the doubt. And in fact, there is a, a, a little bit of plausibility there in the sense that Ludendorff, when he was on the general staff before the war, was always really interested in technology. Yeah. Not necessarily gas, but he was a big promoter of the Krupp um, siege mortars and, and um, uh, aircraft and things like that. So um it's you know in that sense okay he he wants to promote this the, you know this, these gas weapons he was a you know he was a bad guy okay I can accept that but other than that you know it was just, why why pick a, an actual historical character why not just make up an right. 
general that um, you know that tries to kill everybody. Yeah, that was my problem. Yeah, so it was just kind of puzzling to me more than anything. All right. So uh, the final question, um, and and you've already said you would defer to someone else, but we're going to try to get an answer out of you here. Um, when it comes to barbecue, first off, brisket or pork? Ooh, I'm fond of pork. I'm, I, I'll eat brisket, uh, but pork is my thing. One of the things that I mentioned, Bob Wedeman, one of the things that he, I remember him making was a um, like a smoked corned beef. It was fantastic. He put a lattice of bacon on the on the grill of the smoker covered it with corned beef and then, um, you know, like brisket and then filled it with sauerkraut, rolled it up and smoked it. And then you could slice off slices like off of a loaf. Oh my God. Yeah, we got to get Bob on, bro. That was one yeah. of his tailgate specialties. <laughs> really amazing. But, but as a reflex, I will go for pork, carnitas. Um, yeah. When I'm doing Mexican, so pork. All right. Yeah, we now, always lean toward pork. We, we'll do smoke a Boston butt or something and do, yeah. you actually use it for tacos. Right. I mean, yeah, it's great. It's good stuff. Yeah. All right. So whether we're talking Philly or Westport, your choice, um, if you're going to go out for barbecue, where are you going? So I haven't had barbecue in either of those places, um, you know, really long time. And this is going to be kind of a sad, nostalgic thing. But I used to live in Center City behind a place called Ron's Ribs. And if anybody is an old time Philadelphia and they will probably remember Ron's Ribs. It was this awesome African-American barbecue joint um, and living behind it, I got nothing but delicious smoky smell. Oh yeah. Day long. yeah. So was, and, I, and I was a grad student and I couldn't really afford it because it was like four bucks. For, <laughs> yeah. And uh, sadly it went out, it, it, he was going to open a place near Temple and then that didn't pan out and, and it disappeared at some point. Um, so it's not around anymore. So I can't say, I don't, can't say I have a good recommendation. But those kind of places are the best. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cornbread and collard greens and oh. yeah. Well, this has been great, Jay, and uh, I am going to meet Jay in person. Uh, by the time this airs, it will have already happened. But uh, Jay and I are both going to Houston uh, this weekend, so um, we're we're on the same panel at the German Studies Association, and uh, I look forward to to meeting you in person. It'll be nice. Find yeah. some barbecue when you're there. I imagine we can do that in Houston. Yeah. I, think, I think you should be able to do that. Yeah, we can do yeah. that in Houston, no doubt. Absolutely. I was, in, I was in Fort Worth for the military history. Uh, yeah, yeah. And had some good, I, although I don't remember the name of the place. I did have some barbecue there. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of good places, sir. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, this was fun, Jay. Thanks for doing it. Was. it. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, appreciate it. And for all you listeners out there, if you like it, uh, tell your friends and um, we'll keep doing it as long as people listen. Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not B.J. Lederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.